Uh, thank you again for joining us, uh, some for the first time and some for the uh, manyth time. Uh, so thank you for joining us as we, as we gather again to consider some of these central truths that we're looking at uh, in the Bible about what it means to follow Jesus, uh, what it means to believe uh, the truth in God's word and how that affects our lives, how these truths actually penetrate deep into our lives so much that they determine the direction of them. Uh, and especially for those who are, who are following Jesus, I, I hope that this series has been a helpful reminder for you of some of these truths. Uh, it's been, you, you hold these truths dear, but it's been refreshing for you to hear them and remind yourself of them again. Perhaps it's been a, a challenge for you to expand your understanding of these wonderful teachings, uh, to allow your emotions to be captivated by the good news that we see in them, um, and then allow your life to be determined uh, by them. Uh, or, or perhaps you're listening in to someone who, who hasn't yet uh, fully accepted the claims of the Bible for yourself yet. Uh, and I hope that these messages, that, that hearing these core doctrines of the Christian faith, I hope that it's been clarifying for you to better understand this wonderful truth and ultimately uh, to captivate your heart and draw you to Jesus. And, and so as we've been working our way through this head, heart, hand series, knowing what we believe, knowing God's truth, allowing that truth to captivate our hearts and determine our actions, uh, for those of you who have been here for a few weeks, you'll know that we're working our way fairly slowly through our church doctrinal statement, just as a way to frame some of these key beliefs. And today we reach another interesting topic as we think of the devil. What do we believe about the devil? Uh, and, and how does that affect the way we live as followers of Jesus? Um, and I wonder if it's even valid to question why we should spend time looking at the devil. Uh, surely we want to rightly focus on God, on, on Jesus Christ, on, on the Christian life that we seek to live in, in obedience to him. Well, of course, all of that is true. We do want to focus on all of those things. But that also means that we have to recognize the existence of the enemy who seeks to distract us from that course, who seeks to distort the truth which we want to hold dear. And indeed, God, through his word, has much to say about the devil, this, this, this foe. And so we should t- sit up, take notice of what he has to say and how we're to live our lives in light of his existence, but as followers of Jesus. Uh, and before we go any further, there, there's, there's two potential dangers that I want to recognize, and they're at either extreme of a spectrum. Uh, the first danger is that we focus too much on the devil. We actually, if I can put it this way, we show him too much respect, and therefore actually we come to fear him in an unhelpful way. Uh, and our lives become consumed by his activity and what he is doing and how he might distract us Uh, and actually that distracts us from our good and loving and victorious heavenly father and the other possible danger is the other extreme where we overlook where we downplay the devil's activity who he is and what he's trying to do and if we do that then we leave ourselves way too vulnerable to his very conniving ways and so today in light of both of those possibilities both of those dangers, can I encourage you, um, not that I don't encourage this every week, but I can, can I encourage you to really lean in this morning, to really invest in what God has to teach us so that we don't fall into either one of those traps. God's word is good, remember? It is, it is good and it is profitable for everything in, in the Christian life. And so let's listen to what he has to say about this enemy and allow him to direct us and to capture our hearts Because the devil will want to come to steal and kill and destroy. So let's not give him a foothold by allowing him to distract us. And so let's hear God's word clearly. Hear God's word authoritatively. Hear God's word decisively. 
Uh, and throughout all of our, all of our time this morning, I, I want us to remember some very key things that might help to keep us away from those two dangers that we talked about. We want to be abundantly clear that our God is king, that our God is sovereign, that our God is loving, that our God came to rescue us from sin. And, and so as we turn to his word, we want to meaningfully engage with God's word and what it teaches us about this enemy. But let's never, ever lose sight of the wonder of the good news of Jesus. God's word is about God and his good news. So we may leave today with questions. In some ways, I hope that we do. It'll have shown that we've engaged really well in what God is teaching us. But the Bible, God's word, is about God and his good news to us. And so let's, let's not get distracted in an unhelpful way. Let's engage with what God has to teach us about this enemy and how we're to live in the light of it. Uh, and let's see it as good news. Um, and, and as we turn to his word, can I pray? I think today, uh, as much as every week, yes, but I think today and certainly this week, I have felt the need for protection. And so let's pray for that as we hear God's word, as we engage with God's word, as the devil will try, as we seek to talk about him through the lens of God's victorious grace, he will want to distract and distort. And so let's pray for his protection. Father, we thank you that you are good. Thank you that you are victorious, that you are sovereign, that you are loving. Lord, thank you that your word is true. And God, I pray that you would protect us this morning as we engage with your word. And Father, that our hearts would be enlivened by your truth. God, would you bring clarity? Would you bring help and guidance? Would you assure us of your grace and of your hold on us? those of us who have dedicated our lives to you and accepted your offer of grace and forgiveness. So come, we pray, Father. May you receive the glory that's due your name. And we pray for your blessing upon us. Amen. Um, last week, as we, uh, as we sought the, the God's word regarding the Holy Spirit, um, we used three main headings, and I was wanting to use a similar framework again this morning. So we're going to seek to ask three main questions. Who is the devil? What does the devil do? And what does that mean for us? And I realize there are many other questions that you might have about the devil. Indeed, there may be questions raised, as I've said, through our time this morning. So like I said last week, please do get in touch if you would like to discuss more, if you'd like to question more. Um, please do get in touch with me throughout the week. It would be wonderful to hear from you. Because there's no way that we can deal uh, with everyone's question that we might come with uh, in our time this morning. But as we do come to God's word, I am confident that he will speak to us. And he will clarify his teaching as we seek our head, our hearts, and our hands to be uh, used by him for his glory. Uh, so firstly, who is the devil? Well, throughout scripture, there are several names that are used when relating to him. Uh, and some of these names automatically tell us what he does. Uh, they're like a descriptive name. Uh, but let's have a look at some of these examples that we see throughout scripture. And again, we're going to uh, use a lot of references. And then I'll focus on a couple of passages a little bit more in depth. So we see the devil called, directly called Satan in a couple of instances in Job and Revelation and in other places. Jesus himself in one verse calls the devil a liar, a murderer, the father of lies in John 8. He also calls him the prince of this world in several occasions when he's talking to his disciples. Uh, Paul refers to the devil as the god of this age, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Peter explains that he's like a roaring lion seeking to devour. And in Revelation, we see him as the accuser, which is what Satan means, uh, translated. And, and so we can see by how he's described uh, that the, the, the devil is a being who is bent on destruction. Uh, 
there's nothing good in the devil. In fact, he's the very epitome of evil. Uh, and that evil is primarily seen in the reality that he rebelled against the very good of God. Uh, and so he rebelled against God himself. And we're told about that rebellion in a number of places. Uh, and in a couple of instances through scripture, we see that in heaven there were angels who sinned and who were then cast out from heaven. So they were in heaven. They rebelled against God. They were cast out of heaven to await their final judgment, their eternal judgment in what the Bible calls hell. If we look at a couple of instances, and I'll just run through a few of these. Second Peter 2 verse 4, we see, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. Peter goes on with an argument there, but you can see that that's the reality that happened. There were angels who sinned. God sent them to hell, putting them in chains, waiting for the final judgment. In Jude chapter 6, we see as well a similar theme. Angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their prior dwelling. These he kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change for judgment on that great day. And then if I can read Revelation 12, 7 to 9. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And so we see this very clear picture that the devil was once an angelic being in heaven, but through his rejection of the king of heaven and rebellion against him, Satan was then cast out and will finally be judged for all of his evil. And he will be judged along with all of us, everyone who follows, continues to follow in rebellion against God. Rejecting God's offer of forgiveness and grace. And therefore all of us, are, if we don't accept that offer of forgiveness or grace, we're liable to pay the penalty for our sin ourselves. But God made a way possible. Uh, read Ephesians 2 for more on that and we'll speak of it soon. And, and so we've seen some of these terms used to describe the devil, Satan, this, this fallen angel. Uh, and we'll come on to think about some of the activity of what he does in a minute until he is awaiting his eternal torment. Um, But for now, as we think about who is the devil, let me categorically declare that the devil is defeated. That's a moment if we're ever going to say amen. That's an amen moment. The devil is defeated. Yes, he's real. Yes, he's active. Yes, he is not to be treated lightly. I'm not in any way suggesting that. The Bible doesn't suggest that. But in the eternal picture of the glory of God, the devil loses. In fact, the devil has already lost the war. And so, yes, he continues to fight, but he does so in vain. He is a defeated foe. Look with me, and and do please turn to these verses in Colossians 2, if you have your Bible with you. Colossians 2, I'm going to read a few verses, and then verse 15 will appear on the screen. But I'm going to start reading from Colossians 2, verses 13 through to 15. This explains the defeat of the devil. Ephesians 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. We're going to celebrate that when we gather around communion. That is what Jesus has won for us on the cross. Then verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. 
See, we'll turn to these verses again later, as I say, but note verse 15. He disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. See, the devil is a real foe, yes, but he is defeated. And in fact, if we're to go right back to the beginning of the biblical story, we see this defeat mentioned there. Genesis chapter 3, where where the, the, the serpent comes and tempts humanity into sin and relationship with God is broken. Sin enters the world. Everything is shattered. But when God is cursing the serpent, he says this in Genesis 3, 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Satan's head will be crushed. And that crushing takes place at the heel of the the seed, the perfect seed of the woman, Jesus. This is what's talked about in Colossians 2. This is the triumph of the cross, the victory that has been won. The devil's head is crushed. Now, of course, we, we await the final judgment that's spoken of in Revelation 20, when Satan will finally be cast into the lake of burning sulfur, as it's described there. But we await that day and we deal with his constant attacks. We deal with it knowing that he is already defeated. That we struggle now, we battle now, yes, but we do so knowing that we are on the winning side. Jesus has sealed that eternal victory. Not just on that grand scale of all all creation, but for you, if you are following Jesus, if you put your trust in him, then we, we read this in First Peter, that our inheritance is being kept in heaven for you. So, so who is the devil? Well, he, he is many things. He is many evil things. He is many damaging and hurtful and destructive things. But he is ultimately defeated. So, so people of God, take heart. See the goodness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he has won for us this greatest gift that, that, that we couldn't deserve. We, we don't deserve and we could never earn. That forgiveness from sin, that redemption and restoration of relationship with the Father. Jesus has won that for us. And in doing so, he has triumphed at the cross. So the devil is real, yes. The devil is to be battled against, yes. But under it all, he has got nothing on our God when it comes to might and authority and saving power and eternal glory. So who is the devil? He is a significant enemy, but he is ultimately defeated for those of us here in Christ Jesus. Secondly, what does the devil do? Well, we already got a glimpse into some of this when we saw those names in scripture that are given to him. So we can tell from these names that he lies, he murders, he rules to an extent on this earth. He seeks to devour that roaring lion. He accuses the believer, he tempts, he casts doubt, he blinds spiritual eyes, he brings sickness, he brings oppression, he is active. And there's no doubt that some of that that activity is is brash and obvious. But, But he is also an expert in the subtle. And it's that subtle work of his that I want to explore for a moment here. You see, it's often in that very subtle, very conniving work that he instigates in our lives that sometimes even goes unnoticed for a time. Yet once he gets in and gets a foothold, then he can cause untold damage to to individuals, to families, to churches, to communities. And, And often that colossal damage that we sometimes see at the end is sparked by a very subtle, almost unrecognizable capitalist moment. And just think for a moment about how the devil 
does come. We mentioned Genesis 3 already. Let's look at that again, Genesis 3. And I just want to read a few verses and notice and pick up on some of the ways, that very subtle tactic that the devil comes to the woman in the first place. Now, the serpent was more crafty than than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat any? You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Did God really say? The serpent plants that seed of doubt and he twists a reality. But it's a reality that humanity knew. Eve knows what God did say. We see that now in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. See, the serpent came with the question, did God say you can't eat from any tree? And the woman said, no, just that one. God did say we can eat from anything. God is good. He has given us all of this things, but just not that one. And then the devil causes questions of God's goodness. Even though God had given this loving boundary, the devil questions it. The start of verse 4, you will not certainly die. But, but hang on, God said you will die. And now having connived his way in, The serpent now directly questions the truth and the goodness of God. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. See, God had given all that that, that Adam and Eve needed. He had provided generously and graciously, yet the devil comes in and questions God's provision, saying, hang on, did God really say? Oh, no, you, you can eat that. It'll do no harm. Directly questioning and twisting God's truth. And I'm sure you know how the story unfolds. The woman takes the fruit, gives some to her husband, and in doing so, they've broken their relationship with God Almighty. Sin enters the world. And the effects are devastating. Humanity's relationship with God is broken. Relationship between man and woman is shattered. Humanity's relationship with creation itself is destroyed. And it all came about through the planting of a seed of doubt and a very subtle question in the heart followed by a very overt contradiction of God's truth, of course, which eventually then leads to an action that's completely against what God had said would be good. And so we see this subtle tactic that leads to ultimate destruction. We see the same tactic in Matthew 4, but thankfully we see this a gloriously different outcome when the devil comes to Jesus in the wilderness. Uh, And the similarities are striking. The the devil plants a seed of doubt. He, He challenges the word of God. Uh, He challenges the promise of fulfillment um, and even promises fulfillment, which is, of course, an empty promise. But the devil promises fulfillment because God hasn't provided for you, Jesus. Now, Jesus, of course, is able to stand resolutely on the truth of God's word. And so the devil flees from there. But it's the same kind of tactic. What does the devil do? Well, the devil does anything that he can to distort and disrupt God's good intention. Anything that he can do to send one of God's children off course. Anything he can do to keep someone from hearing and accepting the good news of the gospel. Any tactic of distraction or delay, he'll implement it. But before we we venture into any realm of becoming disheartened by, by this seemingly successful foe, remember where we finished our first point. You see, the devil's ways can be persuasive, yes. They can be devastatingly effective, absolutely. But he is not overarchingly powerful. He is not sovereign. He is not all-powerful. He's not God. God is God. 
God is sovereign. God is overall powerful and loving. And so the devil is not acting like a free agent. He is not able to go anywhere and do anything he wants without restraint. And and this can be a a challenging aspect of of the devil's work for us to get our heads around. But the, the biblical teaching is clear that the devil cannot work outside the parameters that God sets. See, God is the sovereign king of the universe. If the devil could do what he wants, where he wants, at any time he wants, then surely he would be sovereign. But he's not. He is lesser than. Consider the the story of Job, where Job begins with this heavenly court, and Satan comes, and there's questions there, but Satan comes and accuses God, saying, Job is only faithful to you because of all the stuff he has. And God says in verse 12, The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And of course, Satan goes, takes away everything material and relational that Job has, but leaves the man because that's what he's been told. I've heard someone describe that he's on a leash. I'm not sure I like that picture, but I understand what it means. Satan comes back, of course, and says, look, Job is only remaining faithful because he's got his health. And God again says, okay, you can strike him, but do not take his life. God puts limits on the work of Satan. Satan is not free to go and do whatever he wants. Because God is ultimately the one in control. And somehow well beyond our comprehension, God is sovereign over all things. Meaning that all things are working for his purpose, God's purpose. If we fast forward through history and think of the cross, those words that we read from Colossians 2, surely this moment in history was the moment where the devil thought that he had really got the upper hand. Christ the Messiah was dead on the cross, being mocked and scorned by the crowd that gathered. Surely this was a victory for Satan. God's son defeated. But even in that moment, no. See, it was through the cross that God was able to pay the penalty for sin. It was through the cross that forgiveness could be offered. It is through the cross that we are welcomed into the presence and family of God. You see, the the powers and authorities were made a spectacle of because, of course, Jesus did not stay dead. He rose victoriously from the grave, defeating sin and shame and the devil. And he did so for us. He did so in our place so that we would know forgiveness. So the devil might have thought that he had won in that moment, but no. Even his most fiendish of plans was only going to serve the good and sovereign purposes of our God. You see, the reason, uh, the reason that, that Jesus was able to disarm the powers there, um, this was really helpfully explained to me this week as, as I read through some of John Piper's work. Just look at this quote and we'll maybe spend some time in it or, or, or else we'll just move on, whatever's helpful. But here we are. When Christ died for our sins... Satan was disarmed and defeated. The one eternally destructive weapon that he had was stripped from his hand, namely his accusation before God that we are guilty and should perish with him. So that's, one, that's the one accusation that Satan can make before God. These people are sinful. Drew Steele is sinful. He deserves destruction with me for eternity. And at the cross, that is nullified. So Satan has got nothing to accuse us of before the Father. That's why Romans 8 verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. That's why nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
When Christ died, that accusation was nullified. All those who entrust themselves to Christ will never perish. Satan cannot separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so aside from the wonder that we should have when we stand at the foot of the cross, the the wonder that we see uh, as we see Jesus, the Son of God, dying in our place, taking the penalty of our sin so that he can then offer forgiveness and grace, as well as the wonder that we see in all of that, we also at at the cross see the devil thinking that he has the upper hand only to realize once again that he, he didn't have a clue what was going on. That he was only acting to serve the majestic and sovereign God on high. Jesus himself even explained this to his disciples in John 14, 30 and 31. When he's sharing the Last Supper, he said, Jesus speaking to his disciples says, I will not say much more to you for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me. But he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded. See, even Jesus knew that the devil is coming, yes, but he's coming to serve. He's coming to serve the the purposes of God, the ultimate purposes of God. And so in all this, we need to recognize that, yes, the devil is active. He is conniving. He can be subtle. He can be discreet. He can be brash and, and seemingly unrelenting. His attacks can be brutal. They can be devastating. I'm not in any way minimizing any of that. But let's never forget as we keep coming back to you that he is ultimately fighting a losing battle. And ultimately, more than that, he's never acting in a way that takes God by surprise. He's never acting in a way that can stump God's plans. Because God is the one who is fundamentally sovereign. He's the Lord of the universe. So yes, Satan, as we've said, is important. He has limited power, but he has nothing compared to our God. So who is the devil? Well, he's an important but defeated foe. And what does he do? Well, he comes ultimately to to seek to bring devastation. But our God is a God who has unrelenting power of restoration. The the final question that we're going to look at briefly is, is, what does all this mean for us? Well, I hope that God's been highlighting lots of points of action, as you've seen, as we've been working through this morning. And and perhaps that's been to expand your view and and your understanding of God's rule and reign, his ultimate authority. And perhaps it's been to warn you more acutely of the devil's works, of how subtle and conniving he can be to to do anything to distract you from following Jesus. But, But whatever God has been stirring in your heart as you've been hearing his word this morning, let's recognize we have a great and a wondrous and an incredible God. And we also have an enemy who's doing all he can to tempt and doubt and and make us doubt and and convince us to spend our time and energy doing anything other than investing in our relationship with Jesus. So yes, our our enemy is real and active, but he's nothing on our God. 1 John 4, 4, the one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so when we come to think about how this practically makes a difference to how we live out through our hands, well, God repeatedly through his word reminds us and, and commands us indeed to get ready for the battle. Firstly in Romans 12, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then I'd like to spend, read just these two verses from 1 Peter 5. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 7 and 8. Sorry, 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. 
be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Resist him, stand firm in the faith. So be ready for this battle. Be ready to resist, to stand firm, to overcome evil with good. Let's finish our time by considering the tools that Christ has given us to engage in this battle. The armor of God. What has been given to us to, to ready ourselves for this battle, this fight. So Ephesians 6. I'm just going to read from verse 10 through to verse 17 and then we'll close. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So as we go from here, let's remember who the devil is. He is ultimately a defeated foe. Let's remember what he does, that ultimately he's not the one with all power and control. Our God is. And what does this mean for us? Well, ultimately, if we're in Jesus Christ, if we've submitted our lives to his lordship and his saving work, then we can never be ripped from his hand. And we are equipped to fight in the battle because of all that God has done for us and continues to do for us and in us. And so may we know his strength. May we know his equipping. May we know his power as we go and engage in the battle that lies ahead of us. Not just this week, but even in the next 20 minutes as we finish this service, as our minds are are given space to consider the table and they're drawn to lots of other things. Let's put on the helmet of salvation. Let's lift the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Let's buckle the belt of truth. God has given us what we need for this fight. Namely, he's given us his spirit. So let's take it and claim the victory that he has already won for us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Oh God, we thank you that that even as we've considered this relatively heavy topic, even as we have hopefully rightly recognized the battle that we're in and the enemy that we face, we thank you, Father, that if we're in Christ Jesus, we we engage with this topic and we read your word uh, about this topic through the lens of your ultimate victory, through the lens of your equipping of us, through the lens of knowing that, that the devil does not run freely, that you are ultimately sovereign and even in attacks that we may feel, thank you, Father, that you have not abandoned us that you are still accomplishing your plans. So would you give us the eyes of faith to see? Would you give us the assurance of heart to stand firm 
trust in you and in your ways. That we would hold the shield of faith and extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. We know that he's going to keep them coming. Yet God, we hold the shield of faith. Thank you, Father, that you have equipped us with your armor. And we pray that each and every moment of every day we would strap it on. So that, Father, we would go into this world that you have placed us and show your wonderful grace and share your wonderful truth with a world that so desperately needs to hear it. With our families who so desperately need to hear it. With our friends who so desperately need to hear it. So come, we pray. Help us to live in the light of your wonderful truth. May we know your leading and your guiding. And may it all, Father, be for your glory. And your renown, we pray. Amen.